Hey, welcome back. This is Robert Fleming of the Tucson, Arizona elder law firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC. You're listening to Elder Law Issues with me and my partner, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Last semester, we did a session on Trust Funding 101, where we talked about the basic principles of funding your trust after you've established it and, and why you established a trust and avoiding probate and what to do with your real estate and your bank accounts and your brokerage accounts and the like. Today, we're going to do Trust Funding 201. I should say this semester, we're going to do Trust Funding 201. Elizabeth, we're going to talk about some of the more complicated trust funding questions. Should we start with the big one, the the 500-pound gorilla in trust funding, which is retirement accounts? Do you title your IRA and your 401k and your 403b and all of your retirement accounts to the trust? No, you absolutely do not. And it's important that you talk to us about the different kinds of retirement accounts you may have. If you have more than one retirement account, we need to know. (laughs) If you have a 403b account or a 401k, we also need to know about those. So retirement accounts, Robert, are a type of asset that will always be in the owner's name individually during his or her life. And we do not transfer those accounts to the trust. The discussion that we often have with people is about the beneficiary designations on those accounts. And the most popular thing to do for most people is to name their spouse as the primary beneficiary on a retirement account. Okay, well, what about the contingent beneficiary spot? Wait a minute, why do I, I created a trust so it would manage my money, it would avoid probate. Why do I wanna name my spouse as the beneficiary at all? Why shouldn't I just name the trust? Well, Robert, you can. But if you do that, you need to go through some considerations and you also need to be talking to us. You need to be speaking with your financial advisor. We need to be paying attention to what ways the tax law is changing. The CARES Act, Robert, which I think that you've had a podcast or maybe we've done a newsletter on, um, that's actually changed retirement accounts and beneficiary designations quite a bit. So do you want to talk a little bit about the rules and how things have changed around naming a spouse or a trust on a beneficiary designation for a retirement account? Sure. And the CARES Act did make some changes, but even bigger changes from the the SECURE Act a year and a half ago. Uh, geez, has it been that long? No, I don't think so. I, it, time has collapsed in the, uh, in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic. But both changes in the law made it so that um, the idea of naming your children or a trust for the benefit of your children as beneficiary of a retirement account is less attractive than it used to be which is not to say it's no good, don't ever do it. It's just less attractive than it used to be. It was always probably tax-wise a better idea to name your spouse as the first beneficiary. And that has been, uh, that, that status has been enhanced by the changes in the law. So almost always we're going to say the first beneficiary of your retirement account should be your spouse if you're married but almost always is not always. There are some circumstances, rare though they may be, where we might tell you we want the trust or somebody else to be named as the beneficiary on the retirement account. So Robert, if rather than naming my spouse as the primary beneficiary on my retirement account, 
I name my trust, and the terms of my trust say when I die, everything goes to my spouse. Is there a difference? There is a difference, and and you will probably have uh, have at least limited, if not ended, the possibility of your spouse taking money out of the retirement account on their life expectancy. Uh, It's possible that we can do some backing and filling after your death and fix the problem, but uh, don't create the problem in the first place. Just normally name the spouse. And what are the circumstances where we wouldn't do that? Well, if your spouse is completely demented or mentally ill and untrustworthy or, uh, or a terrible spendthrift or there are some rare circumstances where we might talk about actually creating a separate trust for your spouse to be the beneficiary of the, of the retirement account. Those are pretty rare. Usually you're going to be naming your spouse as the first beneficiary. But as you say, Elizabeth, the harder question is, who's going to be the alternate beneficiary? And then we're going to have a, a, a series of conversations. And there isn't a basic rule that we can always adopt. Here are some of the considerations. Do you have charitable intent? Are you going to leave any significant amount to a charity? Because if you are, your retirement account may be the best place to fund a charitable gift. Maybe. isn't always, but it may be. And why is that? Because the recipient of a retirement account pays the income taxes on it. If you leave it to your children, eventually they'll have to take the money out and pay the taxes on it. If you leave it to your charitable beneficiary, they take it out, they pay the taxes, and guess what? Charities don't pay any taxes. So that's a kind of an attractive choice to engineer your estate plan so that charitable gifts come out of your retirement account. Do you have a child with a disability? Uh, or a child or other beneficiary who is chronically ill. Um, And if you do, we may be able to extend the process of taking the money out in a way that spreads the tax effect over a period of years. Well, Robert, when we talk about spreading the tax effect, what we mean to say is, is that somebody's not going to be forced to withdraw at a faster rate from a retirement account. But another important consideration when we start to talk about remainder beneficiaries and retirement accounts is that people need to remember if you name an individual as the beneficiary or remainder beneficiary of a retirement account, that account becomes theirs, meaning you're not going to see it go into your trust later unless the new owner who inherits that IRA decides that they're going to name a trust down the road to be a beneficiary of an IRA or 401k or 403b. So what what I really like to talk to people about is if their goal is to have control over their assets so that they can pass those on to other generations, if you have a retirement account that is passed down to somebody individually, it's not later going to go into your trust unless somebody then changes a beneficiary designation. So it gets quite complicated when we look at blended families, when we look at scenarios where the bulk of somebody's wealth may be in a retirement account. I will tell you that I have to look at the rules every time I'm speaking to somebody or their financial advisor or their CPA about retirement accounts and beneficiary designations. So I I want people to know who are listening today, understand that those conversations are imperative because if we don't stop and slow down and have the conversations up front while we're doing your estate plan and have a plan after you've signed your trust with how we're going to deal with these, 
we may completely miss the whole point of the estate plan we've created for you if we don't have consistency with those beneficiary designations on your retirement accounts. And we like to see those forms. We want to help you fill them out. So please help us help you. You're absolutely right, Elizabeth, that people need to give us full information and we need to be involved in that. A lot of the information that's out there about naming beneficiaries on your retirement account is focused on the income tax effect, and that's important, but it's not the be-all and end-all. When you talk to us, you are talking also about how much you trust your children to manage their own money, how much you trust them to marry well, or how sad you are about how they have already married poorly. Uh, There are other questions other than taxes involved, and sometimes we have to balance those. And yes, the tax effect of this outcome will be less than ideal, but we have to do it into a trust for the other reasons that are not tax-driven. So uh, we're trying to take a holistic view of the right answer. So much about what we do, we can say, here's the basic rule, uh, and there are a few variations, but this beneficiary naming on the retirement account after your spouse Um, it's hard to do a general rule. And it's really, really hard to explain in a five-minute conversation, uh, particularly in our first consultation. Absolutely. One of the other assets that I have a lot of conversations with people about are life insurance policies. Yeah. And life, life insurance is not the same wild animal that a retirement account is, but like a retirement account, if I own a life insurance policy and I, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman, are the owner, I'm ch- chances are, unless I got some very odd advice or I have an irrevocable life insurance trust, that life insurance policy is in my name individually and it will always remain in my name individually during my lifetime. And even if you have a second-to-die policy, these are things that people need to remember. Life insurance policies are not assets that we will transfer title to your trust with. We will not tell you once you've signed your trust to get in touch with your life insurance company and update the ownership of your life insurance policy. That is not what we do, and please don't do that. What we want to talk to people about is whether your life insurance should be directed into your trust on your death. And this is something that I frequently talk to people about, and we have to have several conversations sometimes because often people think of life insurance as the very first asset that a spouse may receive to pay for taxes or final arrangements. And we have to go through some of the reasons why it might be a good idea for it to go into trust. Right. One of the basic questions in that or early in that uh, that conversation with clients is, why did you buy life insurance? What were you trying to do? Were you trying to take care of your minor children? Do you still have minor children? Were you trying to pay your estate tax? Do you still have an estate tax? Were you trying to take care of your spouse? Does your spouse already have resources? Uh, and, and we might have different answers based on that. So uh, it's a little bit more complicated than whether to put your brokerage account into the trust's name. Uh, as you say, normally we don't put the life insurance title ownership into the trust name, but whether the trust should be named as the beneficiary is a little more complicated than the brokerage account or the bank account. Um, but uh, but generally speaking, we probably want to name the trust as the beneficiary. The one bad thing about that is that that has the potential of subjecting your life insurance proceeds to your creditors. And maybe we, we want to worry about that. Maybe we don't want to do that. But Robert, what about when I die and, and my spouse is grieving and 
he gets a huge check for a million dollars. Is he going to remember to put that into into our joint revocable trust? No, probably not. So when I talk to people, Robert, who are a little bit older and, and who may be in their 80s or 90s and we're talking about beneficiary designations on life insurance policies, I try and remind them that by designating their trust as the primary beneficiary, they're doing the surviving spouse a favor, reducing work, reducing the stress and the worry of how to transfer a large amount of money into trust after the first spouse dies. That's a confusing, exhausting time where the number one priority we have for families is that you spend time with your loved ones and and really grieving the loss. It's not trying to remember to move money into your trust. So there's a real benefit, I think, for most people, particularly if they're older, of naming their trust as a beneficiary on a life insurance policy. One note that I'd like to make for people is that when we talk about beneficiary designations on life insurance policies or retirement accounts or assets of any sort, you need to remember that in some cases you may make a certain percentage to one beneficiary and a percentage to another beneficiary. So we could see, Robert, somebody who decides that they want to name their trust as a beneficiary of 90% of their life insurance policy, and then they decide that they want the rest of the 10% to go outright to some other person or charity. That happens on occasion, but not usually. So if you're somebody who has a beneficiary designation on your life insurance policy, and there are several different beneficiaries designated in different percentages, that's okay. But remember, we can do that through the terms of the trust. We can actually say in your trust document that you want proceeds from your life insurance, for instance, to be divided in such a way. Um, and so I try and encourage people to, to focus their attention on the terms of the trust rather than trying to get too fancy with these beneficiary designations. Next item in Trust Funding 201 is your separate property. Uh, you're married. You and your spouse create a joint revocable trust. That is your estate plan. Do you put your separate property, your parents' inheritance that you received, into the trust? Well, Robert... We actually um, have a lot of talking to do about community property. Community property and what that means here in Arizona, which is a community property state, um, kind of evoke some of those issues in asking this question. If I all of a sudden am going to put a separate account into my trust by beneficiary designation, and the trust is a joint revocable trust that when I die will benefit my surviving spouse, we have to remember about how that property may change character from separate property into community property if it flows into our joint trust on my death. So it may be that we put the separate property in the trust, but we carefully title it as, uh, as a separate property asset within the trust. That may solve the problem in individual cases. But that you have to talk to us first. Don't yeah. assume that we know what your plans are. Um, one thing that I would say that's important for people in this Trust Funding 201 is if you've been married before and when that marriage ended, you had an agreement with your former spouse about something like a life insurance policy and beneficiaries, or you had a retirement account and there was an agreement with your former spouse, we really need to know about that because we're not going to be able to advise you in a way that's consistent with the legal documentation that you've already signed 
if all of a sudden we're updating beneficiary designations on assets that actually we really shouldn't be. So that's one thing that I want people to understand. Um, don't be nervous about telling us that you do have this life insurance policy that names a former spouse because that was part of your agreement when you dissolve the marriage. That's okay. We need to know about that asset and we need to know about that account and the beneficiary designation, even if we don't do anything to it. So here's the last topic in Trust Funding 201, and it's a big one. It's complicated. It's really a, a doozy. What about your car? Oh, Robert, that's a tricky one. Are you talking about that <laughs> pretend Maserati of mine, <laughs> or are you talking about my old beater that had 270,000 miles on it? Uh, either one. Well, it depends for people on the type of vehicle that they have, the value of the vehicle, and whether or not you may own something like um, a RV, a motorhome, whatever you may call it. So when we talk to people about beneficiary designations in cars, we actually usually point them towards the MVD, the Motor Vehicle Division here in Arizona. You can do a beneficiary designation on any vehicle that you own. So you can transfer title to that vehicle if it's owned in your name individually to your trust on your death if you want to. We find most people don't want to go through the hassle of actually retitling their vehicle into their trust during their lifetime, but it is very, very easy to do one of these beneficiary designation forms with MVD, and it can save people some hassle down the road. The Arizona uh, does have a, a rule that if all of the assets that were in your name alone at the time of your death don't exceed $75,000 in value, we can collect them and put them in the trust by a pretty simple affidavit process. Uh, and uh, your Maserati might be over the 75000 but your beater almost certainly isn't. Very few of our clients' cars are worth more than seventy-five, And even if they have two cars, they're not very often worth seventy-five. But the RV might be. Uh, and so, you know, we need to talk a little bit about it. We probably won't spend a lot of energy getting the cars titled to your trust. But the next time you buy a car... Could you try to remember that it, you'd like to have it titled to the trust? That would be a good thing. Robert, one last thing I want to mention to people who are listening today. We've talked a lot about the complexities here of beneficiary designations and retirement accounts and life insurance policies. One of the things that makes our practice unique is that we help our clients with trust funding. We help you walk through the process. We will review the beneficiary designation forms. We'll talk to your broker. Often when you look at your engagement letter with Fleming and Curdy, you'll see that we've tried to outline some of the work that we're going to do related to the trust funding. It's something that we're really proud of here at Fleming and Curdy that we help people with. It's also something that folks need to understand. We want to talk to you about this on the front end of your estate planning process. It's important that we know about this up front, not only because it will save time and headache later, but it's also important so that we do this consistently with the terms of the documents we're drafting. So please, if, if you're thinking about, well, this seems like a real headache to talk to us about, it doesn't need to be. But if you wait until your documents are all signed, it's a lot more complicated. So please fill out your estate planning questionnaire and, and please raise your questions about trust funding throughout the process. It'll make a big difference in the long run. Thank you, Elizabeth. And, and a final question for you, for those listeners who have sat through Trust Funding 101 and Trust Funding 201 
do we have a uh, a degree certificate that we that we're willing to send out to people? Sure, anybody who wants a trust funding certificate from <laughs> Fleming and Curdy, I will be happy to do one, and I might use some highlighters to uh, designate a star or two. Yeah, that's right. Um, this has been fun, Robert. I I hope that people will come to us with their questions and understand that if we say we need to have a follow up meeting to talk about trust funding, that's only because there may be so many issues there that we need to walk through that we can't do it all in the initial consultation. Thanks. You've been listening to Elder Law Issues, the weekly podcast of Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm. I'm Robert Fleming, and my partner and uh, collaborator is Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We, uh, we genuinely hope you will join us for our next Elder Law Issues episode because we really enjoy doing this and we hope that it's helpful to you. Thanks to everybody.